Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. We went over a lot in episode one, I know. But here's a quick refresher. San Leandro, where our story takes place, is a small city in the Bay Area in California that is best known for the Sausage King murders. Stuart Alexander, the owner of a local, beloved Linguisa sausage factory, shot and killed three state and federal inspectors 21 years ago. What I'm hoping to figure out is why. This question might seem simple at first, but it became clear after digging into this, there is a lot more to cover than I thought. From KCBS Radio and Odyssey, I'm Natalia Gurevich, and this is The Sausage King, Episode 2. And then there was one. At the center of the story of Stuart Alexander, the Sausage King, is family. Isn't that often how it goes with these types of stories? So often, it feels as if our fate is predetermined by our parents. And Stuart was no exception. During his formative years, his father was actually grooming Stuart's older brother to take over the family business. But tragedy struck when he died in an accident, and the responsibility fell to Stuart. And Stuart was never the intended heir his father wanted. Stuart had the weight of his family's legacy on his shoulders. And it's that legacy that would eventually claim the lives of three innocent people just trying to do their jobs. Born on March 22, 1961, Stuart was the middle child in his family, with a brother a few years older, Stefan, and a brother about a year and a half younger, Stanley. Stuart's mother, Shirley, seemed to be in the background of her children's lives. She's the only living member of the family still left. I reached out to her for this podcast, but she declined to participate. The father, Herman, or Tweety, as everyone seemed to call him, took center stage of the family. Tweety was running the already thriving Santos Linguisa factory by the time Stuart was born. The sausage the family had become famous for had been a San Leandro mainstay for decades by the time Stuart and his brothers came on the scene. And Tweety fell into the role of the hardworking, gregarious man about town that everyone seemed to gravitate towards. Jake Francisco, I was the executor for Herman Alexander's estate. He and Tweety were neighbors and best friends ever since they were children. He's the one who told me the origin of Tweety's nickname. 
that his grandmother called him that for crying so much as a baby. While Tweedy took over the family business, he and Jake, who became a well-known restaurateur in San Leandro, stayed close. I met with Jake and an acquaintance who also knew the family at a restaurant Jake works at in Pleasanton, Pastas Trattoria. He's now in his mid-80s. He took on a hosting job as a way for his wife to get him out of the house. He told me this while sitting in a far corner of the dining room next to some freshly installed Christmas decorations. Surrounded by white tablecloths and glassware, Jake, sprightly and sharp-witted, recounted the San Leandro of his heyday, where both he and Tweety were kings. Tweety was the life of the party, and despite being married, was never short of girlfriends. Eh, you know, in those days, in those years, a lot of guys did a lot of, you know, it wasn't like it is now, you know? You know, everybody, it seems that's the way everybody lives at that time, you know. Tweety had a lot of girlfriends. He did. Okay. He was a really likable guy. I gotta <laughs> tell you that. Really, the family was his brother. They were really, really well-liked in the community. Really liked. Well, you have to say that. You were his best friend, right? Well, anybody tell you, Tony Tony was really, really guy, active yeah. in, in politics in the city mm-hmm. and nice, nice families, you know, nice guys. It's, he worked a lot and got home late at night. So when he was around, he was, he was tough on them, you know. Soon, Tweety and Shirley had gotten a divorce. Tweety's girlfriend Betty came to live with them and practically raised the boys, according to Jake. Then, after Betty, came Peggy, with many girlfriends in between and at the same time. While Tweety was running his business and spending quality time with his girlfriends, his sons were growing up, and Stuart was quickly becoming well-known for having a short fuse. Uh, my name's Gordon Galvin, and I was a childhood friend of Stuart Alexander and his brother Stanley. In case you don't remember, we met Gordon in the last episode. My father and Stuart's uh, father were very good friends. His The sausage factory was right across the street from our business, our family business. So we all kind of grew up together, and we knew each other in that context. So went to school together. He definitely knows a lot about the city and how it's changed over the years. But I first got to know him through his more personal connection to this story. He was, I mean, looking back, right, because hindsight, we all have the opportunity to say, wow, you know, we, you know, like in high school, he would go cow tipping and he would, he would, uh, you know, do things that, he thought were funny that were kind of abusive, whether it's to animals or, or people. And so there was some clues even back in school that he wasn't right. You know, there was maybe something a little bit off about him. Um, But, uh, you know, he was uh, a hard worker and Um, He also had a a personality that attracted people. So, you know, it never really caught up with him. Stewart often got into fights due to his temper, which Gordon and his friends witnessed, and in some cases, found themselves on the receiving end. He, another high school friend of mine, uh, they had a, a disagreement. This was in high school, or right out of high school. 
where Stewart um, at the car wash right down the street from, from my house. Uh, so it's one of those car washes that you, you pull in the stall and you do it yourself. Well, they, hey. So um, he pulls in, uh, my buddy pulls into the stall and Stewart's like, I was waiting for that stall. So they get into a scrape and turns into a physical thing. And uh, my buddy ends up, um, you know, kind of taking care of Stuart. And, and so goes about, back about his business. Stuart walks off. He goes back to washing his car, right? Mm -hmm. He doesn't think anything of it. Well, unbeknownst to him, because he wasn't wa you know, watching what had, he thought Stuart had left, Stuart went and got a baseball bat and hit him in the head. He has a metal plate in his head to this day because of that incident. I've spoken to the friend from this incident, John Matalich. He ultimately declined to be interviewed for the podcast, but friends have confirmed this story and others. He set a truck on fire in Half Moon Bay with a child in it. Now, he didn't know the child was in it, but he got into a scrape with the guy on the beach and he knew what car that guy drove. What just so happened that the guy's kid was asleep in the car and he set the truck on fire. So there's a lot of things like that that leading up to, that happened prior to this uh, situation that should have been like alarm bells for law enforcement or anybody to be like, you know, this guy maybe is a little unstable. The child in the car survived, luckily, but Stewart apparently wasn't charged for the crime. Even Gordon's friendship wasn't enough to leave him immune to Stewart's outbursts. So back in high school, Stewart came over to, my parents owned a towing company in the gas station, and so I would work there after school. Stewart would work at the Linguisa factory. So one day he came, he came over to this station and he said, I need you to do me a favor. And I said, okay, what? And he said, I, I think um, my girlfriend's cheating on me. So I want you to go and ask her out and see what happens. Okay. So. <laughs> very strange. Right. So I said, okay, well, I'll do that. So she worked at uh, Miller's Outpost in the mall. So I went in. So now I'm thinking, wow, maybe I'll just go out with her, right? Which I did. So we went out, and then on that date, I said, all right, I gotta, I have to tell you this. Stuart asked me to ask you out. So she then, of course, was really agitated and upset about it, but then she went on to tell me, I'm not with Stuart anymore. We broke up, and I'm actually afraid of him. So again, that's an indication that even back in high school, you know, here's a high school girlfriend that was a little bit fearful. I wasn't worried for my safety until he showed up at my, my door and, you know, said, I'm not going to leave until I break your jaw because Laura told me you guys went out. And I was like, oh, okay. And he barged his way in and just started hitting me and kicking me and punching me. And so he actually beat you up. Oh yeah. And I, the only way that my jaw wasn't broke is that in that house, there was a fireplace like that. And it had those you know, the, the brush and the poker and all the things that, and so I was able to crawl over there, grab the poker 
and get up and start swinging and hit him a couple times. And then he backed off and then ran out of the house. Now, I called my dad, who was alive at the time. Tweedy was alive at the time. And my, you know, my dad said, you know, get over here. Tweedy brings him, you know, almost like pulling him by the ear. We're 17 years old. It's not like we're 10. And, you know, our fathers were like, now hug him. You guys hug each other, you know. And he was like, I'm not hugging him. And I go, I don't want to hug him. He just, you know, like tore me up. And they said, you guys hug. This is family. We've known each other. And so we did. We gave a weird, awkward hug. And then that was the end of it, right? <laughs> um, but I didn't really see him after that for years. Stewart graduated from San Leandro High School in 1979. By then, Stewart was in the position of being next in line for taking over the business. His older brother, Stefan, died tragically in a motorcycle accident in 1977. He was only 18. Everyone I've spoken to agreed that Stefan was the golden boy. He was. He was a good, good kid, yeah. Well, he was, he was the boy that was going to work, take over the factory. Tweedy's brother had passed away. And then uh, Stefan was the one who was going to come in and work. It was working there anyway and uh, going to be the one to take over. The accident was a huge blow to the family. Um, Chabot Road, motorcycle accident, went over and hit a car head on. He was at the hospital every day till he died, and after that, it was a year, a year for Tweedy to just to come out of the shell. And so, by the time Stewart himself was 19, he was already working for his old man. Stewart did keep in touch with one of his high school friends, Troy De Herrera, during that time. They'd met in junior high school and stayed friends for years later. According to Troy, who also worked for his dad doing landscaping, Stewart was a bit obsessed with money. He was always trying to make more of it, always looking for an opportunity or an angle. He was money hungry. You know, I think the money really, you see it in people, or he wanted to make that dollar. You know, we, we had a few luxuries because of my father's construction company, and he would come by and he, you know, he would talk about, and I just, it was, you know, it was his car, dirt bikes or something, Dad, but he was always whining to me about, Dad, I didn't pay him enough. After a while, Stuart grew fed up with how little his dad was paying him to work and struck out on his own. He delved into multiple businesses, including a waste hauling operation that Troy occasionally lent a hand with. Between that and other projects, he was keeping busy. But Troy soon got frustrated by how Stuart treated their friendship, as if it was something transactional. And he always liked me a lot, I think, because, you know, I, I had avenues to, to generate cash legally. And, you know, once I seen how, how he went about doing business, I didn't want to do business with him no more. And at one point... Even Troy got fed up with Stuart's rage and intimidation. One day, Stuart called up Troy and asked him to bring over one of his digging machines to help him out with something on his property. Stuart didn't actually always pay Troy for the work that he would do. But this time, after repeated assurances that he actually would pay him, Troy headed over. Stuart pointed him to a part of the yard by the fence line he wanted dug up. 
and Troy knew immediately that digging there would be a bad idea. That was where a water line was located, and if he dug, it could get damaged. But after several rounds of arguing, Troy went ahead and did as he was asked. He dug up the ground and severed the water line. He was mad, but it wasn't until the woman living at the house next door popped her head out to see what in the world was going on that Stuart's real intentions became clear. The whole thing was an intimidation effort. Stuart had Troy sever the waterline to try to force this woman to move out. This was pretty much the last straw for Troy. He wanted the people out of the house. And then we're cleaning. So he goes, hey, how are you going to take a shower now? You're all, you got no water. I'm all, you son of a bitch. Because, you know, so he, like, made me an accessory to it, you know? And Stuart's violent outbursts continued. But now in even more drastic ways. Jake, the executor of Tweedy's estate, remembered something really weird that Stewart used to do. He was a, he was a violent man, really violent. Oh yeah, he was really violent. Because you've known them since they were babies. Was he always like that, even as a child? No, but when he got... Uh, in his late teens and 20s and 30s or whatever, you know, he would do things uh, that were really crazy. Hearsay again, you know, go down to Oakland with a gun and call people down and then shoot the gun in the air and watch them all run. Really? Yeah. He was violent. violent. At this point, Jake moves the microphone away from his mouth. He didn't want to share it in the moment because it was hearsay, as he put it earlier. But apparently, Stuart went down to Oakland with a gun because he wanted to, in other words, scare the black people living in the city. But there was one notorious violent incident people brought up in several of my interviews and was in fact brought up during Stuart's trial. The time when he beat up his neighbor, an elderly man named Clifford Berg. From all the stories I've heard, Stuart was running a waste management operation, and instead of always disposing of things properly, he'd leave the trash in the backyard of one of the houses he owned. His neighbor, a man in his 70s, grew fed up with it and began taking photos of the trash as evidence. Stuart caught him, confronted him, and beat him up, reportedly pretty badly. But Stuart was never charged with anything. And just as he had so many times before, he managed to get out of it, paying Clifford off. And I think that, you know, it's important to note that he always slipped off the hook in terms of uh, having responsibility for any of these actions, right? That he set the guy's truck on fire and... and, uh, Half Moon Bay. He hit John Madelich in the head with the board. He, you know, he, it was rumored that he was the one that hit St- Stanley in the head. And there were other incidents uh, that the, the guy next door who punched him in the face. But he never had to do time. He never had, he, he always found a way to either buy his way out of it, threaten his way out of it. And I think that was a contributing factor in what ultimately happened because he felt that I can get away with anything. 
Things changed when Tweedy died in 1993 from cancer. Suddenly, Stuart found himself in charge like he'd always wanted. But his father knew better than to let his son have complete control of their family's business and wealth. This is where Jake came in, the restaurateur who'd been friends with Tweedy since they were children. Jake can't remember what kind of cancer it was, but knows it spread through his friend's body in a matter of months. Oh, it was within months, and then he, then it, then he got real bad real quick. And when he was dying, he called up and um, wanted to, I, I had a trust, and he wanted to do something because he could, didn't trust his boys. They got a hold of their mutual attorney, Lee Brunner, and because time was of the essence, Jake was installed as the executor of Tweedy's trust overnight. Tweedy died soon after. Brunner took care of everything, you know, it, it, all his wishes, and he wanted the girlfriend, Peggy, don't know her last name now, to live in the estate, his house for a couple years, which didn't sit right with the boy. When Jake says boy, he means Stuart. As soon as Tweedy died, Stuart made his feelings about Jake's role in his father's will and his father's now former girlfriend very clear. So after uh, Herman passed, um, Stuart asked me to step down, you know, that he was going to take care of everything. And I said, well, tell Bruner, tell the attorney. And so Bruner said no way, and the court said no way. What's going to happen? Well, he wasn't really happy with me, and we did. I had all the money and everything tied up. The state was worth several million, and uh, he was just trying to get his hand on everything, and I was selling it off as best I could, you know. Selling it off to? To whoever, so we could put the cash money into the estate. And Stewart wanted all the properties tied up so that he could have them in his name. These properties were extensive, including the factory, an apartment building, his personal house, and a few other holdings. Like he wanted his brother to keep his nose out of everything. Bruner and I were in court at least six times, and Lee died, and it went to his daughter, uh, and uh, Bruner Nash. And she, we closed it out. Her and I closed it out. It took forever to close it. You know. I'm saying... Six years, I think. I think, yeah. Yeah, it took a long time. Stewart was not happy about the arrangement. And he definitely wasn't happy at the idea of his father's girlfriend getting anything. He went so far as to bury one of the family's cars, a Corvette, because he didn't want her getting her hands on it, even though Tweety had given it to her. And he didn't stop there, according to Jake. Peggy, um hated him with a passion. He hated her with a passion because he, he is, so they say he killed her dog. Okay, so was, he wasn't sure if it was your dog or if it was her, her dog. Her dog and put it in front of the banquet room in my restaurant. What? Okay, alright, so what kind of dog is this? Is it a big dog? It's a big dog. Okay, yeah. I don't remember how it was killed. Just killed the dog and it was found in front of my banquet of a new restaurant there. And you're pretty sure it was him? 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't know anybody else. Well, yeah, everybody said he killed the dog, you know, all the friends and everything, because there would be no reason for somebody to go kill the dog and drop it off in front of my restaurant, you know. Stewart's relationship with his younger brother, Stanley, was strained at this point as well. After their father died, Stanley returned to San Leandro after spending time in treatment for drug addiction. See, Stanley was into drugs, and his father had sent him to Hawaii to get cured. Yeah, there was a place there that did real well in curing people, so that's where he said Stanley. When Stanley came back, uh, I put him to work so we could watch him. He wanted to work at the family business, out the factory, do his part. But according to Jake, Stewart was having none of it. There was uh, no arrangement other than keep your nose out of the business if you know what's good for you. He threatened his brother several times. Jake had taken Stanley under his wing by then, giving him a job at the restaurant in the kitchen as a sous chef so he could keep an eye on him, keep him out of trouble. Stanley, unlike Stewart, seemed happy with the arrangement of Jake being the executor because he would still be entitled to half of the estate. But it didn't do any good. Stanley died in 1995, just a couple of years after his father. The circumstances behind Stanley's death were, at the very least, strange. At most, some might call it murder. Stanley was hit by a train in San Leandro. His body was found on the tracks after the impact. The tracks themselves weren't that far from the factory. Based on what I've learned, although Stanley was fighting some demons, he wasn't suicidal. Gordon, at least, is more or less convinced that Stuart was somehow responsible for what happened to his younger brother. I believe that he was responsible for his brother's death because a week before Stanley uh, got hit by the train, he was hit in the head with a bat very similar to what happened to my friend at the car wash. I say it's a bat. We don't know what it was. He was hit with a board or a bat. He, you know, went and filed a complaint and said, you know, I walked out of the Linguisa factory late at night one night and somebody hit me over the head with the, <laughs> with something. Um, and so Stanley was a drug addict and he had left and was gone for a period of time. And when uh, Tweedy passed away, all of a sudden Stanley came back on the scene and, and Stewart did not want to... Uh, share the inheritance. I mean, that was the bottom line. And so he had to get Stanley out of the way, and, and that happened. And one of the um, reasons why I think that Stewart was involved is that Stanley's drug of choice was uh, amphetamines or cocaine. So he was, you know, he was hooked on uppers, but he had more downers in his system when he got hit by that train. And everybody said, you no, know, he never took you know, quaaludes or something to bring him down. He, that wasn't, that's not what he did. Um, so he was heavily medicated. He was given something that, you know, put his body in a state of almost extreme calm that he couldn't even move because the, the person driving the train said he was conscious. He was, look, we made eye contact and I'm blowing the horn and he wasn't moving. So, you know, uh, so I think he was drugged heavily and then put on those tracks. And, and, you know, that's just my opinion. Gordon isn't the only one who thinks it's a possibility. Stanley 
got hit by a train and uh, that was it they say you got back on drugs again I believe just what people said they said his brother had taken had taken care of that in other words his brother put I guess got him on what they say his brother got him on drugs and put him on the, it was close to where they lived uh, where, where Stewart lived and uh, that was the end of it I was a Napa when I got the call but as soon as we got the call everybody said his brother did I could never really prove that that happened but uh, but everybody said that people said that his brother before this right after Tweedy had died Stanley was behind the Washington Club, the factory, where they own the factory, and somebody hit him in the head with a post hole. Post hole digger. People at the Washington Club, the bar in front of the factory, called Jake, telling him that Stanley was behind the bar, bleeding. So the bar in front called me up, said, hey, Stanley's back here bleeding. Uh, something happened to him. So I left work, went over there, and he was unconscious, called the ambulance, got him to the hospital, and saw the post hole there with blood on it so being not a family member I took him to the hospital and I couldn't really admit him but they knew Stan, uh, Herman through Tweedy through the business of being in, in town for all those years they accepted him because they knew that I was executor so I kept calling Stewart no answer kept calling him no answer not till the next morning said he didn't hear the phone so we figured he did that too. No proof, but we figured he did that too. So you're confident that he was responsible for that, but how about... Well, I'm, I, I can't prove that, but I, I think it was him, yeah. At this point, the Pastas Trattoria had emptied out, and it was just me, Jake, and Gordon left sitting in the dining room. When Jake said this, it's cliche to say, but... A chill ran through me, despite the warm and brightly lit room. It seems unreal that this all happened, these deaths, in such quick succession, and no one questioned it more at the time. And still, more deaths were to follow. Next time on The Sausage King. Although ownership of the factory was consolidated rather simply for Stuart running it would prove to be trickier than he might have expected. They went in there and tried to help him and train him and even brought a, uh, uh, a former uh, USDA inspector who was a consultant in to help him with it. And finally he said, nope, I'm not doing any of it. But regardless, the product, the product spoke for itself, according to one source, which I discovered I had a personal connection to. He testified. Wait, I'm sorry, you're joking. No. Seriously? Yeah. Wow. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> Didn't know that. Yeah. I'm floored. Okay, I thought I knew everything. I did not. The Sausage King is researched, written, and narrated by me, Natalia Gravich. Matt Pittman, Don Bastida, and Eric Brooks are our producers. With production, sound design, and editing by Matt Pittman. Cover art created by Dre Irabaran. Social media by Greg Wong. Jennifer Selig is brand manager for KCBS Radio. The Sausage King is a production of Odyssey. Listen and subscribe on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.
We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.